All right, uh, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 107. And uh, Lord willing, I want to finish a message we started here a few weeks back. And my emphasis here in giving my testimony, Psalm 107 and verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. Uh, Don't forget the power of a testimony. And, And I'm afraid sometimes the longer we've been saved, the more we lose sight of that. If you've been saved as long as I've been, and I can see 50 years from where I'm standing, you can sometimes lose sight of the things that God brought you through. And you might minimize uh, the power of that testimony to others. But, uh, and by the way, don't think that your testimony has to be like somebody else's to be effective. I, I think it's unfortunate that in a Christian culture, the testimonies that get glorified are the ones where someone has come out of a real gory background of sin. Now, praise the Lord. It's dramatic when God saves somebody out of that. But you know what? I think it's even better when God saves somebody from all that. And for some of you that were raised in a good Bible-believing church, you were spared a lot of that. And that's a great testimony, too. So don't be afraid to tell others what the Lord has done for you. Whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you were just saved recently or long, long ago, you have a testimony that is of value to the Lord, and he can use it to bring others to Christ. So I I shared a few things with you about my early life, and then primarily my emphasis last go-round was on this one particular point. How, How did I get involved in the drug culture? How did I get involved in those kind of things? Because what I want to talk to you about today is how God redeemed me out of it, because it was the Lord that got me out of it. But how did I get involved in that? I I came from a good home and uh, had had loving parents and in in a very normal situation, very stable situation. I wasn't saved. None of my family were as well. But how does somebody get into that? And Uh, One of the things I shared with you is that the devil is good at ambushing us. He's good at ambushing us. And a lot of times that ambush, that temptation, will come from a place we least suspect it. And so it was in my case. And I want our young people to understand that. And I want parents to understand they need to communicate with their young people. Don't just sit there in fear just hoping nothing bad will happen. And feel like if you haven't got a knock on the door at 2 in the morning from a police officer, that everything's okay. Don't wait for it to happen. Okay? Communicate. And young people, communicate with your folks. Communicate with someone in the church uh, that can be a help to you in these matters. But for me, it was a friend, two friends. And I didn't expect it. And I got ambushed, and I got put on the spot, and I made a split-second decision that I knew was wrong, but I went along just to keep the friends. And you know what I'm finding? It's no different today than it was then. We just have a name for it now. They call it peer pressure. And we found out that the solution to that is to do what Daniel did. Daniel purposed in his heart ahead of time. 
before he was offered meat that was likely offered to idols by the Babylonians. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. He made up his mind ahead of time. He thought it through. He probably talked it over with his friends. And he wasn't ambushed. Uh, Folks, if you wait until the moment to make that decision, you're likely to make the wrong decision. Purpose in your heart ahead of time to do right. Purpose in your heart ahead of time to do right. Parents, talk to your kids. Grandparents, talk to your grandkids about these matters. It's not a matter of if temptations come. It's when and how they come. And help them to be prepared. We talked a lot about that last go-round. Now I want to talk about uh, how the Lord Jesus Christ uh, ended up saving me, how he ended up in my life, and how that all turned everything around back in August of 1973. I've said to you before, if we're going to be successful in bringing people to Christ, we have to be patient. And I think the Lord demonstrated that in my life. How many of you did not get saved the first time you heard the gospel? Let me see your hand. All right. That's more than half. Some of you, you got saved the first time you heard the gospel. Praise the Lord. But most of us don't. In fact, it took about nine months or so of a lot of persistence by a lot of people in taking me to a good Bible-believing church when I'd been raised in a church where the gospel was not preached. I was raised in a church that was all about tradition. I was raised in a church with liturgical worship, which was very ritualistic. And yet, it took about nine months of the word of God coming to me by various friends and over the pulpit before it finally got through that it's by the grace of God that we're saved and not by our works. I think it's a little ironic that I would have been leaning upon works at all because my life didn't look like a a good example of biblical works, not by a long shot. But that's how people think. That's how they tend to look at things. And God brought some people into my life, and in my senior year of high school, I accepted Christ as my personal Savior. I think of two young men, a young man named Dennis and a young man named Jeff. Someone one time said it takes a village. I'll just give you one one of the many stories that I could end up giving you, and for the sake of time, I'll, I'll keep it short, but... You see how God works in your life. I remember when I was still lost and doing drugs and hanging out with my, one of my best friends that we did drugs together. Uh, we were at a store one day, and we ran into somebody that my friend knew, and it was Jeff. It was Jeff Spain. And I didn't know this other guy, Jeff Spain, but my friend Paul did, and they're talking back and forth. And when it was all done, we walked away. And I said, I said to Paul, I said, who is that? He said, well, that's Jeff Spain. And, and I said, what's his deal? He goes, well, he's a Jesus freak. And I said, what's a Jesus freak? He said, well, he was messed up on drugs one time. Now he's messed up on God. That's the way he put it. And I don't know why. In fact, I know why it was the Lord. That's stuck in my head for some reason. At the time, it had no reason to stick in my head. 
But God was going to use that later. Several years later, when I determined I wanted to get out of the drug culture and I wanted to find something real, I remembered that conversation. And I got a hold of my friend and asked him about this guy, Jeff Spain. Long story short, this was before the days of cell phones and such, so it took a little more work to get a hold of him. But I ended up getting a hold of him, and we spent, we spent an evening together. We went to McDonald's and sat down, and we talked. And I remember when we were talking, I began to shake. You say, why, was it, why were you shaking? I was so excited. I didn't know what he was talking about. But I knew that what he had was what I needed. I didn't understand the doctrine. Like I said, it was nine months later when I got saved. But I knew, I just knew, I don't know if God was telling me in my heart or what it was, but I knew that what I was looking for, this guy had it. And I would start going to church with him. And he introduced me to Dennis. And Dennis lived a couple blocks from me. And Dennis was an awkward young man, primarily due to some health problems. Almost kind of a hermit type of guy. But, but he loved the Lord and he knew the Bible. We called him the, the walking Bible in the Bible study group over there at that church. And I remember we would, <clears throat> we would walk around the block uh, late at night. We, we, we'd circle like a mile, uh, a mile radius. And, and we would just talk and talk and talk and he would feed me Bible and we would talk about life because I was looking for something. I knew I needed something. And, and God brought those two young men into my life and they began to, to, to encourage me to come to church and take me to church. And I remember Friday nights when that, that Bible study group would meet called Tent Makers and the Walskis remember it and my wife remembers it and the Birchards remember it. Maybe there's somebody else here that was part of it too that I, I, I'm not acknowledging, but it would meet on Friday nights. And, and, it, and in those days before I got saved, uh, Friday nights were, were the big party nights. And those guys would come and invite me to the Bible study and they'd pick me up. And that gave me an excuse not to go to the parties. Do you know what? <clears throat> I'm all for street work. I'm all for passing out tracks, but most people aren't going to get saved the first time you throw a track at them, okay? And I'm all for that. In fact, when we were at the Biltmore, I shared with the men last night, <clears throat> when we were at the Biltmore, we were in a little courtyard later at, at the end of our little get-together, our little excursion there, my wife and I, and we were sipping a cup of coffee, and there was about 50 people sitting there. Outdoor courtyard between all the buildings, about 25 on one side, 25 on the other. And we were getting up to leave, and I'm starting to walk away. And as I started to walk away, I thought to myself, you know, I don't know why I wouldn't just stand up here and give them a word of testimony. And that was me talking. And then, and then I heard someone say, well, why not? That was the Lord. And I said to the fellas last night, be honest with God, because you can't fool them with your piety. And I answered, because I don't want to. <laughs> I, I don't care how many times you've done public ministry, street preaching, public ministry of any kind, the devil's really going to fight you. 
And I remember standing there, and I, and I motioned to my wife to come on over. She was walking. I said, come on over here. And she knew what I was going to do. And she said, what are you going to do? I said, you know what I'm going to do. She goes, you know, we're going to get kicked out of here. I said, we're done anyways. <laughs> we're leaving. She goes, all right. She goes, what do you want me to do? And we were out of tracks. Otherwise, I would have said, well, track the place for me. But she said, I'll pray. And I stood there trying to get that first word out. <laughs> and after about three minutes of that, I asked for, the, for a sign. I was in the walk area that going back and forth between the two seating areas. And I said, Lord, just kind of clear everybody out of the walking area and I'll do it. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> I just gave him about a two-minute testimony. And when you're in a situation like that, you don't have to use your street preaching voice. You don't have to go, the Bible says, you know. They'll think you're nuts because they're just sitting right there. You, you know, somebody's just going to wonder, why are you yelling at me? And in a conversational manner, I just talked about what a beautiful day it was and what a beautiful place. But the Vanderbilts proved something that we all know. You can't take it with you. And neither can you and proceeded to give them the gospel. So I'm all for that kind of thing. I'm all for it. But most people don't get saved the first time. That can be used to plant seeds. That can be used to water the seed. That can be used to push things forward. But normally, you know what it takes? It takes somebody who's saved investing themselves in somebody that's not. Rolling up your sleeves and maybe getting dirty. Maybe making an investment of time, prayer, emotions, money. Who knows? But God used people in my life in that way. I think of my wife's testimony, <clears throat> very similar a young lady that was going to the same church, knew Carol in school, but she wasn't a very active Christian. And she wasn't a very active witness for Christ. Her Christian life was pretty mediocre. And she somehow thought that Carol was saved because Carol was moral and upright and not doing a lot of things that a lot of the other kids were doing. And so this gal that invited her to go to a Billy Graham crusade thought she was just inviting another Christian. And lo and behold, my wife heard the preaching and went forward and accepted Christ as her Savior. My wife would not have gotten to that crusade without that other little girl saying, hey, you want to come with me? You want to come with me? You know, some people that you invite to church might come if you say, hey, I'll meet you there. I'll be there. I'll meet you at the door. Or how about if I come pick you up? Or maybe you'll have to spend six or eight or 10 or 15 sessions with them outside of church, doing something with them, having a cup of coffee, having a conversation, inviting them over to your house. You hearing what I'm saying? Hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong with being a friend. Didn't the Bible say that Jesus was a friend of Republicans and sinners? (laughs) 
He was a friend of publicans and sinners. Folks, publicans were hated. They were, they were Jews that, that in the minds of all the other Jews that sold out to the Roman government to collect taxes from the Jews for the Roman government during Roman occupation. The Romans hated him and the Jews hated him. But Jesus befriended him and Matthew was an example of one of them. The tax collector, the publican. Friend of publicans and sinners, he ate with them. He conversed with them. And folks, I'm convinced if we're willing to do the same, we can bring others to Christ as well. Be willing to be a witness for the Lord. Think of those that befriended you. Think of those that brought you to church. And if it was your folks, think of them. Don't take that for granted. Oh, they were my folks, you know, and they had to drag me along, and I just happened to get saved. Ho-hum. Wow, thank God for the circumstances that God put you into when you were born, amen? Thank God for that. So I got saved my last year of high school, and uh, God gave me my wife there. I met Carol there, went down to Bible school in Pensacola, and God allowed me to start a family, learn, learn a trade, uh, went to welding school, had a had a good teacher. He was, uh, he was an old Navy guy, and he was, he was pretty rough, but he was a good teacher. Uh, I remember he would, what he would do is you'd be in the welding booth, and sometimes he would sneak up behind you, and he'd look through your hood between your head and the side of that hood, and he'd look through the lens, and he'd, he'd watch the puddle, and he'd watch you weld. Well, what I think he didn't know is that I could see a reflection of him. And, and he would get right up behind you, and if he didn't like what you were doing, I, I remember to this day, he'd yell, Michael!" at the top of his lungs, you know, three inches from the back of my head. I mean, everything would go flying, and, you know. And I remember one day I was, I was welding, and he, I saw him looking through the hood, so I just moved my head. <laughs> Flashed him real good. He didn't do that again. <laughs> he was a good teacher. He was a good teacher. I remember working down in Bible school as a longshoreman for a couple months before we uh, headed home between my first and second years of school. And uh, Brother Tom Bard is, isn't here today, but his daughter, I'm sure, is here. Is, is Katie here somewhere? There you go. And uh, your dad was an animal. He was an animal. He's a big guy now, but man, in, in his prime, he was a big, strapping, strong guy. And working as a longshoreman, you, mostly what we were doing was stacking up 140-pound sacks of flour. We called it pitching biscuits. And if you were lucky, you got on a boat that had 50-pound rice sacks. That was a lot easier. But I think I probably weighed 165 pounds, and the bags were 140 and man, he was just, he was just great at it. And it was hard work. And the way you got hired on is you'd go down, you'd go down to the union hall downtown. And after they hired all the union guys, then the non-union guys could step forward. You'd hold out your social security card. And they'd look you over like a piece of meat because it was hard work. And they wanted to, you know, know if you could do it. And uh, I was always with your dad, Katie. I just stayed close to him. 
And they'd always grab his card, and then Brother Tom would say, he's with me, and then they'd take my card. <laughs> I was able to catch up, but, but, but I wasn't the beast that he was, and we'd work together. And, and those were just great experiences. And, and, and just thinking of the people that God uh, puts into your life before you're saved and after you're saved, and working in the shipyards down there and, and working at the... Uh, uh, the chemical plant and, and doing that kind of work. And, and, and you know what? Let me say this. My respect for bivocational, parent, uh, uh, for bi- bivocational pastors is immense. You know, there's a lot of preachers that aren't full-time in the ministry. They have to work a quote-unquote secular job. But they still preach. Do you know what? Truth be known, we're all full-time in the ministry. It's just that some people put the bread on their table a little different way than others. And I think of those that God put into my life. I remember graduating from Bible school and uh, winding up with Brother Dave Rowley, who's, who's since gone home to be with the Lord, and uh, helping him get a church started on the northwest side of the city, on West Irving Park Road, and the things that I was able to learn uh, through my relationship with him. I remember pastoring my first church out in the country in Shalakta, Pennsylvania from 1980 to 1984, and the lessons that God taught my wife and I during those times, and the precious saints of God that we were able to work with, and some of the funny stories, I'll just give you a couple of them real quick. It was a real country ministry, and we had a certain number of coal miners in the church, and we had a certain number of farmers in the church and then a smattering of others, but uh, those were the main two groups. And the second Sunday, the second Sunday night, coming out of the church after the service, we didn't have any parking lot lights, so it was dark. And a, a family in the church that raised a lot of chickens and they were farmers had placed three dozen eggs on the seat on the driver's side of our car. And I got, I got Carol and uh, what probably just Katie at the time in on the other side. And I opened up the door and hopped into the seat. And at first I didn't know what I had just sat on. But it didn't take long to find out. We had a little kid, a little girl come to vacation Bible school with her little brother. And they were both little goomers, and they would come and bring nickels and dimes and quarters for vacation Bible school to put in the little offering there. And with everybody there, she'd come in late with her brother holding his bro- her brother's hand, and, and she announced to everybody, she said, my brother just swallowed his nickel. <laughs> A lot of delightful stories about those days. God called us to come out here. Why did we come out here? Simply put, I felt at the age of 27, I still had a lot to learn. And the man that was the pastor out here, I felt he had those intangibles that I needed. So we moved out here. God provided for us. He took good care of us. It was a counterintuitive move, but God was in it. And we were just going to stick around for two years. That's been a little longer than that. God had other ideas. And when the former pastor left, the deacons asked me to be the interim. 
And after six months, when all was said and done, January of 1987, the church voted for me to be the pastor of the church. The rest is history. I wish we had the time this morning, I could tell some of you young people story after story after story of God's faithfulness. I wish we had the time this morning that I could tell you story after story after story of the sacrifice and hard work and the blood, sweat, and tears of God's people. Here in this church, some who have gone, to, gone home to be with the Lord by now, and many of them are sitting here today. By the way, ask them about it. By the way, some of you that are those people, tell others about it. How did this all get here? How did this church come to be? It just doesn't happen. God uses people. God uses faithful people. God uses faithful people with commitment. And God has given me 37 wonderful years here and 44 wonderful years in the ministry. This is year number 44. can hardly believe it. But I think most of all of my Proverbs 31 wife, the Bible says, he that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. I had a uh, sort of feminist gal one time tell me after I quoted that verse, she goes, I am not a thing. <laughs> after talking to her for a while, I wasn't sure she was right about that. <laughs> but I proceeded to explain the verse to her. I said, look, God's not calling anybody a thing He's just saying God provides a wonderful circumstance to a man when he gives him a good wife. He that, he that obtaineth a wife findeth a good thing, or, or he that findeth a wife uh, findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And God has given me favor through her. I've said this before. I've heard so many preachers say that if it wasn't for Christ, I would be on my way to hell. Folks, I'm here to tell you tonight, uh, to this morning that if it wasn't for Christ, I would have already been there. Some of you here this morning, Brother Walski, you'd have made it by now. You'd have made it to hell. Brother Burchard, I don't see him here this morning, okay. Uh, Brother Clancy, would you have made it to hell by now? I really think you would have. You'd have been there. Brother Gip, Dr. Gip, yeah, he wouldn't be Dr. Gip the Evangelist. He'd be dancing on hot coals right now. And there's many others that would have to say the same thing. Hey, folks, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed out of the hand of the enemy. But for the grace of God, we'd already be in hell. Let me wrap this up here. A couple things real quick. I want to show you the two verses that God used in my life the most to bring me to salvation. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, and take a look at verse 12. I'd been raised Roman Catholic. I was taught that uh, Christ wasn't enough. You had to pray to Mary. You had to confess your sins to the priest. You had to receive the sacraments. You had to do works. You had to be a good church member. You had to attend church. As Catholics, we were taught if you miss church on, you miss mass on Sunday and die on Monday, you go to hell. Maybe we Baptists ought to start preaching that. <laughs> Maybe that would increase attendance. I don't know. But I had it stuck in my head that, that I had to do something and that I couldn't know for sure. I couldn't know for sure. By the way, all religion 
teaches, all man-made religion teaches, you can never know for sure. Christendom or otherwise, you can never know for sure. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You notice that every one of those words is just one syllable. One syllable words. How simple. Isn't that wonderful? We're not talking about differential equations here. You don't have to have an engineering degree. You don't have to be a math whiz. He that hath the Son hath life. If you have the Son, you have life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And then look at the next verse, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may, what's the next word? Know that ye, what's the next word? Have. Know that you have. Know that you have. Know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. What a revelation that was to me. I hear people say to me all the time, they say, well, what verse would you use for a Catholic that's trusting his works? I would use those two verses. What verses would you use for a, a, a Mormon who's trusting his works? I would use those two verses. What, do you, what, do you, what would, verses would you use for a Hindu uh, that's trusting his works or a, a Muslim that's trusting his works? I would use those two verses. Those are universal. Those are universal. And then turn to John chapter 5, the gospel of John chapter 5. And, and this was the clincher. One of my friends, Jeff, that kept witnessing to me. Oh, by the way, that night that, that Jeff and I spent together when we first met, I stayed up all night in my bedroom, kneeling next to my bed, praying Hail Marys, our fathers, and act of contritions all night that God would keep Jeff alive till tomorrow morning. That's how excited I was. I didn't know there were any other, whatever he was, in the world. I thought maybe I had found the only one. But I didn't want God to let him die that night because I knew that he had what I needed. How many of you here this morning want to be that person in someone else's life? It's not hard. Just look around, find a lost sinner. Be a friend and tell them about Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 24. I kept telling him all along, well, Jeff, that's all fine and well, but I'm going to go to purgatory. I'm going to go to this place that, frankly, the Catholic Church invented many years ago during the Dark Ages to make money, to sell indulgences. But it's called purgatory. You say, what's purgatory? Well, it's a lot like baloney. Next time you're at the deli, ask them for a purgatory sandwich. They'll give you bologna. You're not bad enough to go to hell, but you're not good enough to go to heaven. So you go to a place in between the two. It's kind of like hell. It's, 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 it's punishment. You're dancing on hot coals, but you get out after an unspecified amount of time. I never could figure out whether we'd spend hours there, days there, weeks, years, millenniums. I don't know. They had this elaborate system of taking, getting time taken off by, by buying indulgences and people praying for you, and it, it, it's, it's crazy. But anyways, that, that was my hope. I, I knew I wasn't good enough to go to heaven, and I, and I never missed Mass on Sunday. I told you last time that I would leave a pot party on Sunday, go to Mass, and come back. And my friends thought I was crazy. But I, I, I just didn't want to go to hell if I died the next day. 
And so I believed in this thing called purgatory. And I, and I kept telling my friend, he'd say, well, you know, you, you need to believe Christ and you need to trust him and you'll have eternal life. I said, no, 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 I'm going to purgatory. I'm going to purgatory. And, and he said, well, show me purgatory in the Bible. I says, it's in there somewhere. How many of you ever got that answer before? It's in there somewhere. Because I was told by the priest it was in there somewhere. I don't know how many times I've read the Bible now, cover to cover, and it's not in there anywhere. And so, so he said, well, he said, it's not in the Bible. I said, it's in there somewhere. And he handed me his Bible and said, show me. So I did the logical thing when you're stumped and you don't have an answer. I threw his Bible at him. So, hey, befriend somebody. Give them the gospel and prepare to pay a price. But in the end, the price is worth it, folks. The price is worth it. Let me finish by saying this. This is Grandparents' Day. Grandparents' Day. When I think of grandparents, I think of legacy. When I think of grandparents, I think living for the next generation. I was reading the book of Isaiah the other day and cross-referenced it back to, back to the kings. And I was thinking of Hezekiah, who was a, a great king. He did a lot of good things for Judah, for the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But he was the king that was extended his life 15 years. The Lord granted him grace. And if you've ever read that portion of Scripture where, 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 where Isaiah pronounces the judgment on the nation because of his foolishness, after God told him he'd have those next 15 years and the Babylonian, Babylonians sent representatives to, uh, to come to him and, and he showed them everything. It, it, when you read between the lines, it was a big boast is what it was. And Isaiah pronounced the judgment on the nation and his children over that. And you remember what he said? Good is the word of the Lord. And then there's, there's a little pause there and he says, is it not good if there's peace and truth in my days? You know how I think that thing went? Isaiah pronounced the judgment. Hezekiah said, good is the word of the Lord. And Isaiah just looked at him, puzzled. And he said, is it not good if there's peace and truth in my days? Hey, grandparents, grandparents, don't live for the Winnebago. Don't live for spending your kid's inheritance. Don't live for doing nothing. Live for helping those kids and grandkids make it. You still have a purpose. Don't be like Hezekiah. By the way, by the way, Manasseh was, I believe it was 12 when he took the throne. He was born during that period of time. Read what Manasseh did. I believe what happened in those last 15 years that God gave to Hezekiah as he became self-absorbed. Let's be absorbed in helping the next generation live for Jesus Christ. Let's be absorbed in that. Let's be absorbed in carrying a legacy. Young people, I've alluded to the fact that there's been a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that made this church what it is today. 
Let me ask you a question. When those of us that our grandparents are gone, will you carry the torch? Will you make the commitment? You know what I noticed after this many years in the ministry? I noticed that when young people turn on the Lord after their parents raised them in a Bible-believing church like this, the parents spend a lot of time brokenhearted. I've noticed when young people, their parents get backslidden after bringing the kids to a church like this. I've seen some of those kids hang in there. I've seen them go to camp, but I've also seen them struggle and be discouraged. How about if we break the mold of this me generation? How about if we break the mold of this, what have you done for me lately? How about if we break the mold of this, well, I'm just not getting out of it what I think I ought to get out of it and start thinking about others. Well, it's just too hard. I've reached a place in life where fill in the blank. I don't care what you fill it in with. It comes down to one thing. I've just become selfish. I've become like Hezekiah. And as long as I get what I want, who cares about the next generation? As long as I get what I want, who cares? How about making a commitment this morning? I want to leave a legacy for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us that are older. And those of you that are younger, I want to carry that torch when the older generation is gone. We don't know how long it is before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. It's soon, I hope. Amen? It's soon. But we don't know how long. We don't know how long. Would you be willing to pay a price and stay with it and go on for the Lord? Do it for the next generation. Do it to be there for others. We live in such a selfish, selfish, selfish culture. It's all about me. It's all about what I get out of it today. It's all about how I feel. How about if we start thinking of others? Others. Others. Like the Lord Jesus Christ did. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became what? That we might be made rich through his, through his poverty. An old man traveling a lone highway <clears throat> came at an evening cold and gray to a chasm deep and wide. <clears throat> the old man crossed in the twilight dim, for the sullen stream held no fears for him. But he turned when he reached the other side and builded a bridge to span that tide. Old man cried a fellow pilgrim near, you are wasting your strength with building here. Your journey will end with the ending day, and you will never again pass this way. You have crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you a bridge at even tide? And the builder raised his old gray head. Good friend, on the path that I have come, he said, there followed after me today a youth whose feet will pass that way. This stream, which has been as naught to me, to that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building this bridge for him. Happy Grandfather's Day, everybody. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. I'm 
thankful for what you've done in my life. So much more could be said. And Father, truth be known, there'd be so many other testimonies just like it, Lord, where all we can do is just say, praise God. Thank you for what you've done for me. And Lord, you've been faithful for these many years since you saved me. And I know you'll be faithful in the years to come. And and we believe, Lord, you're going to be faithful to send your son to take us home soon. But until that time, help us to be found faithful. Help those of us that are older, Lord, maintain the legacy and leave one for the next generation to your glory and honor. And Father, may the next generations to come, if you should tarry, may they be faithful to pick up that torch and go on for you. Lord, we're not telling you anything when we say that we're living in trying times and confusing times and difficult times and perplexing times. And you said it with the word perilous times. Lord, it's, it's so much. And yet you're there. You're there with us. You're there through it. And in the end, Lord, you're going to get us on through. Help us to be faithful, Father. Help us to be a witness for you. Help us to tell others about Christ, publicly and privately. Help us, Lord, to be faithful as ambassadors of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you again before this great assembly of people, Lord, to give you glory and honor for what you've done in my life. Help our young people, help our old people to go on for thee. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 122, let's stand and sing. Number 122. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilled grace grace God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow Marvelous.
less infinite, much less grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, and you that are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? Dr. Gip, would you come on up here and close us in a word of prayer? Father, it is good to be saved. We are here because of what we sang about just now, your grace. God, all of the gods of the heathen, they're always angry. They always have to be appeased. But our God is merciful and kind and gracious. We thank you, Father, for that. We thank you so much. Now, God, as we dismiss, let us not leave our Christianity here. But as Pastor said, let us... uh, Show a light to a a world that is getting darker by the moment, that they might see the light of Christ in us, that we might bring people to you, that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.